Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the third part of Elihu's speech in chapter 34, where Elihu was seeking to correct Job's bad thinking concerning God being unjust. And he was, Job was claiming that God was kind of committing injustice toward him uh, by taking away these rights that he thought he had. And uh, those rights were something like the right to enjoy a good and prosperous life with lots of wealth, family, and health. You know, all those things were taken away from him. The right to hear God speak anytime he, he wanted to hear God speak. The, the right to be heard by God. You know, if he, if he prayed, he expected God to hear and to answer those prayers. Uh, the right to even argue his case because he felt like he had a case. He was a righteous man suffering. He felt like he had some kind of case and he wanted to argue that in divine court and he felt like he had the right to do that. He felt like he had the right to expedient justice and vindication and so on and so forth. Um, and Elihu observes all of, all of uh, Job expressing these rights in all of his speeches. He observes all this and then he raises his uh, objection to these things. In 34, he laid out a perfect defense for God's justice because that's what was under attack. And he, he based God's justice on evidence that God has you know, eyes that see everything and ears that hear everything. And when he brings justice against a person, it's perfectly just because he has all the evidence he needs to bring it. Uh, he talked about how God's justice is impartial because Job felt like he was being deliberately picked on by God. So Job thought there was some, maybe some partiality there. And Elihu says, no, no. Uh, he, he described how God's justice is final. Once it comes, that's it. And he described how God's justice can't be mitigated. It can't be negotiated. Once it happens, it's final. And you, you can't say, well, I did six good things, God, you know, and work your way through it and work your way out of it. Once justice, once the hammer of divine justice falls, it's fallen, and that's it. And so these are the things that Elihu argued to kind of try to steer Job away from this idea that God is unjust. Another bad thought from Job had to do with God being uncaring. He began to see God as being uncaring. Uh, this accusation, like all the other accusations that, that Job was making, it's, it's not overt. He never just says, God, you're being uncaring. God, you're being unjust. It's always implied. All of these accusations from Job are implied in his defenses, his defensive conversations with those friends. When Job accuses God of deliberately refusing to hear and answer his prayers, he is, when, when, when Job makes that accusation against God, he is indirectly accusing God of being uncaring toward him, right? I mean, if you're not going to listen to my prayers and answer my prayers, and, and, and you know, you're going to make that accusation against God, it, the inference we can draw from that is that God is not showing care toward his servant because he's not listening to him and not answering his prayer. And Job's speeches are just riddled with these accusations. Again, they're not overt, they're not plain to the eye, but they're there. And this idea of God being uncaring because he won't answer prayer and these things. And I, and I would think that Job would, could launch an accusation against God for being uncaring, for taking away all his wealth and family and, and health and everything else too. Here's a righteous man who's suffering unjustly in Job's mind and that does not communicate a caring God. Amen? And I think that that we can, what, what, what Job's wrestling with here and what Elihu is going to attack and, and defend, I think it resonates with us to a degree because there are things that happen in life that cause us to scratch our heads in curiosity, wondering if God actually cares. I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that thought was going through our house last night while Rachel's sister is dying and then dies. You could say to yourself, well, why would God do that? Why would God do that to her children and, and whatever? Maybe God isn't caring. You can see how we think and how this can come about. And this was Elihu's assessment of Job that he was charging God with being uncaring. And I think it's very, very accurate. I think it's very accurate. Now in the next section, Elihu seeks to correct this line of bad thinking. He will make clear to Job that if, if Job's prayers go answered, or, or, or something to that effect, and really it's the focus in this chapter is on prayer, but if they go unanswered, it's not because God is uncaring, it's because God has other reasons. There, 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 there can be reasons for why God does not listen or does not answer prayer, and it, it doesn't, it's not because he's uncaring is what Elihu is going to attempt to teach him, because that's what Job thinks. Please take your Bibles and turn to 
Job 35, we're going to look at the whole chapter, 1 through 16. It's a shorter chapter, which I like. Um, these chapters haven't been very short lately. Last week's was, what, 37 verses? Got through it pretty quick. And I suspect today's sermon will be longer with half the verses. I don't know why, uh, but you never know. And I think it'd be good for us to pray beforehand. I'm going to give you some R's this morning. It just made sense to put to frame the whole text under the banner of R, and um, we'll describe what those things are. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for your help now. Just help me to be focused and, and just to minister the word now. And I got my own distractions, my own hurts. My heart's sick right now, and, and you know this, Lord, but that just these things, you show us great compassion. You are caring, but there are things that we must do. There are duties that we must uphold, and and these sorts of things, and I just pray for my wife, and I pray for our church. Um, I, I just pray as we deal with losses in these things that we would turn our eyes to Christ. Help us now as we focus on your word. We pray that you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to the truth. Lord, take the truth and apply it to us this morning. May we hear it, believe it, apply it, and live it, and bring you glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, Cameron, you're right. This fan is just blasting. It's blowing up my shirt, which is a weird sensation when you're trying to preach. That's just weird. So, uh, with all that said, let's begin where we picked up last Sunday, where we left off last Sunday. We got this first R we want to deal with this morning, and that's Elihu's reference. He's going to reference some things that Job has said. We see this in verses 1 to 3. We'll tackle verses 1 to 3 right up front. This is what Elihu says in the very next line, leaving off last week. It says, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? This is kind of a, an interesting text. I, I felt like it kind of belongs with chapter 34, since 34 deals with God's justice, he, he's asking a question pertaining to something that would or would not be just, but it does make sense to be here in this chapter as well, but I think you could, you could tie it to the last chapter. Ultimately, Elihu begins this next correction, because that's what this is. He does it by referencing some more past questions and statements from Job. That's exactly how he began his argument in the previous chapter, and he's kind of doing it again here. Remember, he was like a digital recorder. When Job would say something that he, he, would, it, he needed to take note of it, he would take note of it and bring it back up. And, and the first thing that he takes note of, something that Job had said, is, do you think this to be just? That's a comment that Job had made at some point. Now, you've got to understand the context and the belief system of Job and the friends to understand this, this comment. In Job's worldview and his view of the way things work and his theology, the payment for sin, like if somebody sins, the payment they'll receive for that sin, or as Romans put it, puts it, the wage that they will earn. In his worldview, the payment for sin, the wage for sin, is always or was always equal in proportion to the sin. Like if you committed a particular sin, the punishment that you would get would be equal to that, you know, the, the, the level of punishment you would receive would be equal to that of the sin. Like if you sinned small, you would receive small judgment. If you sinned medium, you would receive medium judgment, large, large judgment. You understand? That's, that's the way his mind works. This is what he's, that's, this is basically the motive or the MO or the thinking behind this comment. Do you think this to be just? You, you sin small, you get a small payment. You sin big, you get a big payment. That's the way that it works in his mind. And I think there's a great many people that think that's the way that it works today, and maybe it does in some ways. In other words, there's a statement we used to make, and, and that's that the punishment fits the crime. Now, you commit this crime, you get this punishment. Now, we know that our culture is deviating away from this because people are committing heinous acts and getting very little punishment. It used to be that if you did this, you got a pretty steep penalty. And, and, and these days, it, 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 it's going down, which isn't motivating people to stop doing big crimes. But in his world, in his realm, the punishment always fits the crime. The, the person would receive the exact payment for their sin, no more, no less. 
And the Bible illustrates this, doesn't it? What does it say? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we usually stop there, but there's actually a hand for a hand and a foot for a foot, Exodus 21, 24. So the Bible even shows that, you know, you, you gouge somebody, you, you, you cause somebody to lose an eye, you lose an eye. It shows that the, the, the payment for the sin that you've committed is exact and precise. You get back exactly what you've committed. In fact, I don't know what text it is, probably in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, but it talks about how if somebody were to make a false allegation against you and they didn't have witnesses to, witnesses to support it, and it actually went before a judge or a priest or anyone else, let's say I make a false charge against Cameron, and the penalty for, for the charge, would let's say it's death. So I am, I am making a charge against Cameron before a court of law in Job's day, in David's day, any day like that, and the penalty that Cameron, Cameron will receive, if it's proven true, will be death. Let's say that that's a false charge and they prove it. Guess who dies? Me, the one who made the charge. I tell you, if they brought that back, would crime drop? Hmm? Can you imagine? That's how it used to be. There was true justice. The Bible actually promotes true justice. You get what you deserve. And that's Job's thinking. At some point, Job had asked his friends if it was just, right? That's the question here. Do you think it to be just? He had asked his friends, do you think it to be just for a righteous man such as himself to receive such terrible suffering from God. That's essentially what he's asking here or had asked in the past. Is it just for me, a righteous man, to be suffering so greatly at the hands of God? Remember, in his worldview, in his system, the punishment fits the crime. And Job sees himself as one who did not commit a crime, and yet he is one who is receiving the harshest possible punishment. That's what he thinks. And that's why he's saying to his friends, do you think this, what's happening to me, do you think it to be just? And of course the answer, well the answer they gave is it's absolutely just because you must have done something really bad and you're just hiding it. But the answer to the question according to Job on his side would be a resounding no. There, there's no way that that a righteous man, there is no way that a righteous man such as yourself could suffer such devastating punishment because you haven't done anything to earn it. That's the worldview. That's the way that it, it works in their system. If, if they thought that Job was actually innocent in any way, shape, or form, they would have argued in support of this idea. No, it's not just what's happening to you. Of course it's not just. A righteous man, in their view, a righteous man cannot receive terrible suffering from God because he is righteous and doesn't deserve divine justice. That's the view. Don't a great many people have that view today? They think they're good when the Bible says no one's good? How can God let you know, bad things, terrible things happen to good people? Newsflash, there are no good people. But people think they're good. So we have this kind of thinking in our own minds. It's ingrained in us. Job had also at, at some point probably just kind of invisibly threaded through his, his speeches. He had presented the idea of fit, F-I-T, fit. If he had actually sinned, right? if Job had actually sinned, he didn't believe he did, but if he had actually done something, did his sin fit the punishment he was receiving from God? Was it proportionately accurate? The answer again would have been a resounding no because Job could not find any sin in his life that warranted such extreme justice from God. Now, Job did not completely deny uh, the presence of sin in his life. He did not. He did not claim to be perfect. He did not claim to be without sin. He made burnt offerings to cover his and his family's sins. Uh, we see that in, in uh, Job 1. But Job did vigorously deny doing anything worthy of the punishment he thought he was receiving from God. In Job's mind, the destruction of a person's wealth, family, and health was re actually reserved for the most wicked sinners, murderers, rapists, and so on. You know, not for those who might have committed a small sin. Not for the righteous, because the righteous aren't sinning against God, therefore they don't deserve any kind of punishment from Him. 
But that's not even the point that Elihu is seeking to make here. He's, he's laying out, and really all Job's doing is again attacking the justice of God with this comment. And what Elihu's doing is not really trying to bring that to the forefront of the minds that are there paying attention and the ears that are hearing. There, there's something else that he's trying to do here. Job's view, again, punishment fits the crime, blah, 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 blah. That's the way it works. That's the way it has to work. And, of course, Job and his three friends were binding God to that. Like, this is the way it works, God. This is the way you have to do it. We don't know what you're doing with Job here. That's the mentality. That's the thinking. But that's not the point. The point that Elihu is seeking to make right here in this very text is the fact that God is sovereign and free to do as he pleases, anytime he pleases. That that if punishment fits the crime is, is kind of the way of the world and the way that it works, God doesn't have to do that if he doesn't want to. God can give a, a higher penalty to a lower sin. I mean, God is free to do whatever he wants. If God chooses to, to wait and to not punish someone for their sin, whether it be small or big, he, he can do that. That's his prerogative. The battle here between Elihu and Job really isn't about justice or anything like that. It, it's over the fact that Job thinks something terrible has happened to him and it shouldn't have. And what Elihu is saying is that God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. Whether you think it's fair or not. Whether you think it's just or not. God is God and you are not. Right? You know, God can bring suffering into our lives whenever he chooses. And for whatever reason, doesn't have to be because we are sinning and deserve suffering. That, this is a big point that Elihu is trying to stress to Job. Okay, we know that suffering is in the world because we live in a fallen world. We understand that sin has brought suffering. We get that. It's brought death. It's brought cancer. It's brought all the terrible things into our lives. We understand that. But we need to understand, and what he's trying to teach Job equally here, is that suffering is not always the result of sin in our lives. In other words, if I commit some kind of a sin, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be immediately followed by suffering. Or if I've done nothing wrong, that suffering can't come into my life because I haven't sinned. Sin is not always the result of sin in our, our suffering is not always the result of sin in our lives. In other words, I don't always just sin myself into suffering. Suffering comes whether I'm sinning or not at times. Amen? There's a great many people out there that hold this view. And, you know, well, you know, uh, uh, Sally's got cancer. It's because she just won't repent of her sin. Well, Sally can get cancer whether she's repenting of her sin or not. She lives in the Central Valley. She's probably been eating pesticides her whole life without realizing it. Okay, so, so suffering is not always the result of sin in our lives. This is one thing that he's trying to teach Job. And this was the case with Job, right? Because we know the truth. We, we know chapters 1 and 2. He, Job didn't do anything to cause suffering to come into his life. He was a blameless man, a righteous man. He was an innocent man. Job 1.1, 1, 1, he was upright. He feared God, shunned evil. I mean, he did all these things right, so to speak. So... It wasn't because he was actively involved in sin that God unleashed the suffering on him. It was a test between God and Satan and God aiming to make a point to refute Satan. That his people worship him because of who he is, not because of what he gives. Remember, that's the baseline for this book. So, suffering is not always the result of sin in our lives. This was the case with Job. He wasn't suffering because he was being sinful. And he did give way to sin in his life in, in some ways here with these accusations and this bad thinking. But he didn't start out that way. The best example of this would be Jesus. Did he sin his way into unbelievable suffering? No. Jesus was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 2.22. All these verses illustrate his sinless perfection and yet he suffered unimaginably amen unlike anyone in history anyone in the present anyone in the future nobody will ever beat jesus in suffering because nobody's ever in this life even survived it i know jesus died but nobody's bore the wrath of god like jesus did and that that is unilateral unmitigated 
suffering that's at another level. None of us can even comprehend that. In fact, Jesus had to be God to be able to endure that suffering. God had to take that suffering on himself because only God could endure it. No man could come close to even bearing what Jesus bore. So he suffered greatly and, and more than anyone in history or present or future, and yet he was without sin. So, so what, is, what are we learning? Suffering is not always the result directly tied to some kind of sin that Dustin or me or Lily or anyone else has done. Although I think we would all agree that sin can bring suffering. We would never deny that. I can engage in certain types of sin and it can cause suffering for me and for my family. It can cause suffering for this church, can't it? If I did something crazy and went out and had an affair or something like that, would that not have a suffering effect on this church? Of course it would. So it can, but it's not always directly tied to some direct sin. Suffering is not always sin-induced. That's a, a good point to write down. Suffering is not always sin-induced. It is the product of a fallen world. I get that, but it's not always sin-induced. We don't always sin our way into it. It is, however, always sovereignly induced because God has ordained it in accordance with His perfect plan. Do you understand what I just told you? Suffering is sovereignly induced. God has ordained it from the beginning of the world. When you go through a bout of suffering, God ordained that for you. So sin doesn't necessarily bring it, but if it does in fact come, which it does into all our lives, that's, there's a sovereignty behind that. God has ordained that. God has allowed that. He has his reasons for it. This is Elihu's big point here. You know, does the punishment fit the crime? What could I do to possibly bring about this level of suffering? Elihu's saying God can do whatever he wants and he's ordained this. So that was the first statement. The second statement Elihu referenced is, it is my right before God. This is something else Job had said. Job felt that it was his own personal righteousness that had earned him certain inalienable rights with God. We've been talking about this over the course of the last few weeks, especially last Sunday. I, I mentioned it again at the, the intro of this message just a few moments ago in my little recap. Elihu's point is that if righteous Job has any rights before God, those rights... They do not supersede God's sovereign rights. God is sovereign and free to do as He pleases. And if God has bestowed rights on a man or a woman, Lord bless that person. But even the, the bestowment or giving of those rights and the receiving of those rights do not supersede God's rights to do as He pleases anytime He pleases. When He gives someone rights, if in fact He does, if He does that, if God does that, that doesn't mean, okay, now God is saying to that person, by the way, those rights are tatamount to mine, tatamount to mine, they're equal to mine, and, and, and uh, we're both sovereign now, by the way. Job felt like these rights that had been given to him by God had had elevated and, 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 and risen up to the level of sovereignty. And, and now God has no choice but to uphold His rights because they're at the same level as God's rights. This is the corrupt thinking in Job's mind. Job was acting like his God-given rights were on par with God's sovereign rights. And he was terribly wrong for thinking this way. This is why Elihu rebukes him here and in the previous chapter when he declared, Job, who gave you charge over the earth and who laid upon you the whole world? Job 34, 13. Who made you God? You say you have rights and you say they're on par with God's rights? That they carry the same weight? As, as, as that of the Creator who has the right to do anything that He chooses, whether He wants to give suffering or not, whether it's related to sin or not, you're saying that your rights are on par with God's? Who made you? I, I didn't realize you went to God's school, graduated with honors, a master's degree in divinity. There's an actual degree that you can get at a pastoral or a seminary called a master's in divinity. Does that mean you master the divinity? 
I, the divine? <laughs> I've never understood what that means. It's just the silliest title. I'm a master of divinity. Kiss my ring. It's just weird. Isn't that weird? Just Why don't you get a, a master's degree in, in biblical theology? I don't know. Maybe the title's okay and it's safe, but it sounds weird. Like, you know what? That guy's almost God. Graduated with godlike honors after 94 years in cemetery. I mean seminary. It's almost the same thing. It just, there's an elevation. And what is it that causes an elevation in us? P-R-I-D-E. Huh? What causes that? Pride. Okay, so, so, so the point that Elihu is seeking to make here as he challenges this second statement by Job is that, yeah, okay, fine, you have rights, but they're not the same rights as God's rights. Your rights aren't sovereign like God's sovereign rights. He can do anything that he wants. What he's trying to teach Job is that there's only one sovereign, only one, only one king. And it isn't Job, it isn't even Elihu, it isn't Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There's the sovereign not you. Is this right for this to be happening? Is this just? I'm the sovereign. Well, God would never say it like that. I would, because I get mad. But this is, the, this is the challenge. Who made you? Who, who, put, who put you as Lord over the earth, Job says, or Elihu says in the previous chapter? Now, the third final statement that Elihu references and really lays siege to is this thing that Job had said about what advantage have I? How am I better off if I had sinned? This is probably one of the most feckless, faithless things that Job said in his eight speeches. It's just dumb. And you know, I'm not making fun of him because if I had a dollar for every time I said something dumb, I, I would probably be in the White House. I'd be elected. I'd be a politician. I'd have straw hair and teeth like Biden. I'd be a combination of both those guys. <laughs> Biden actually has pretty good teeth, you've got to admit. Hair on Trump, not too good. This is a feckless thing to say. It's really faithless, too. It just what advantage is it? If I had, you know, would I be better off if I had just gone ahead and sinned? Because look at the way God's treating me. This is what he says. This is a, this is a, a, a terrible accusation. It's one of the worst things that Job had said. He was suggesting that being righteous is no different from being sinful since God was treating him like a sinner. He is saying, I, I may as well live like a sinner and do whatever my flesh desires since my righteousness isn't paying off. What's the advantage to being righteous? Look at my destroyed wealth, family, and health. I don't hear God speaking and I don't hear him trying to comfort me. You guys, and Job is essentially saying to his friends, you guys have heard all my prayers and you've watched all of them go unanswered. God is not speaking to me. Job is essentially saying through that one statement, when I examine my obliterated life, I see no advantage at all to being righteous. I just don't, what's the point? If God is going to treat righteous people like sinners, I may as well live like a sinner. That's, that's what Job is saying through that statement. He's looking at it through the lens of benefit. There's benefits that come to being righteous, and when those benefits are taken away, all of a sudden he's really not interested in being all that righteous, which tells us that he has a wrong motive, at least at this juncture, doesn't he? It's not about the love of God. It's about what he can get from God. The very thing Satan said would happen, Job is beginning to let happen. This really, this type of faulty logic here, it's prevalent among unbelievers, not believers. They conclude that a, a life of righteousness in Christ is not advantageous when compared to a life of sin, the life of sin they are currently in. You know, a, an unbeliever has the ability to kind of assess Christ and assess their sinful life. And by the time they get done with that assessment, they say, well, it looks to me like just following Christ is all about canceling out all these things that I shouldn't be doing. And it's about rules and regulations. We, we, of course, know it isn't, but that's what they think. And their estimation at the end of, of the assessment is it's just better to be who I am in this life of sin, to live a life of righteousness, because the life of sin 
pays huge dividends. At least that's what they think. The life of righteousness doesn't. This is the way that Job is now processing, and he's a believer. This is unbeliever mentality. This is the way that, that those outside of the fold think. They draw these same conclusions. The life of sin is what I know. It's comfortable, and if God is, you know, if righteousness doesn't pay off, then why be righteous, right? Why not be sinful? This is the way they think. This is the way Job is now thinking. This is his conclusion. It's really tragic. Now, it's not that the battered patriarch Job wanted to return to a life of sin. That's not what he wants to do. You know, he was in a life of sin, and God saved him. He's simply at a point here where he began to question the value of righteousness because he had so many unmet needs, so many disappointments, expectations that had been shattered. He thought his righteousness would bring about a certain life, and it did for a while. And then when it went away, when he hadn't, in his mind, done anything wrong, he's now saying, I don't even know what the point of any of this is. I guarantee you there's at least one or two believers in this room who felt the exact same way whenever, you know, they, they're following Christ and everything's going pretty smoothly and cool. Then all of a sudden calamity comes and they start saying to themselves and maybe even repeating it to others, what's the point? What's the point to this? Now, even mature Christians can be tempted with this because I would consider Job to be a mature Christian. But it's there. It happens. But it's not the logic of believers. It's the logic of unbelievers. And really what happens is this kind of mentality, this kind of thinking, this kind of bad thought, thinking God's uncaring and, and the whole shebang here, it, it, it happens to us. We're flooded with this sense when we set presumptive expectations rather than trust in God and rest in His sovereignty, right? When we make expectations, we set expectations for God based on who we think we are or, you know, how religious we are or how good we've been lately or, you know, based on any number of, of things that we might enter into the, into the game here and are bartering with God. We just, we set these unrealistic expectations or not unrealistic, but they're presumptive. You know, if, if I do A, then God will do B and it'll equal C. It's this kind of thinking. And when we set these expectations for God, when we assume that he's going to do something in particular and then he doesn't, then what happens? We say, what's the point? What's the point to any of this? You see, in Job's worldview, if you did X plus Y, you ended up with Z. That's the way he thinks. But he's been doing X and Y and he hasn't been getting Z. So now he's saying, what's the point? When we set presumptive expectations rather than trust in God, rather than rest in His sovereignty, that's when and these things don't play out the way we want them to play out. That's when the disappointment comes. That's when the disillusion comes. That's when the accusations against God come. That, that, that's when it happens. We presume upon the Lord, right? We presume upon Him. We presume upon the Lord, we build our hopes on that presumption, and then we dash ourselves to pieces when things don't go our way. At the end of the day, it's us who came up with this idea, it's us who carried out this idea, and, and then the idea gets crushed, and then we're mad at God and start charging Him with being uncaring. The whole time, it was here. See, that's why during suffering, you're not supposed to presume, you're not supposed to guess, you're not supposed to do any of those things, but simply find a way to trust. That's what you're supposed to do. That's faith. When you're trying to work a potion together or a scheme together, you're not living by faith, you're living by sight, and now it's impossible to please God because you must have faith to please Him. It's all based on what we assume can happen, and then when it doesn't, we're destroyed. And see, that's what Job is doing here. He has a view of the way things are to work, and, and, he, and it's such a, he's so, you know, it's, he's so ingrained, this thinking is so ingrained in him that when it doesn't play out, he only has one finger to point, and it's at God. You're being uncaring. You're being unjust. You're not doing things the way that I know you're supposed to. 
which is ultimately an attack on his goodness and it's an attack on his sovereignty. And Elihu is saying he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And if things don't play out the way you want them to, it's his sovereign prerogative. Get over yourself. We presume, we build hope, we dash ourselves to pieces on the rocks of adversity because things didn't go the way we wanted them to. There have been countless quote-unquote Christians, because no true Christian would ever walk away from the Lord, but there have been countless fakes, whatever they are. Maybe they're just professors. They just profess Christ, but there's really no real faith in them or anything like that. But there have been countless people like that that have come along and had all these expectations, and then when they get dashed, they're gone. Jesus even gave an illustration of what this would look like with the sower and the seeds. You have expectations, you think you know the way it's supposed to work, and then it doesn't, and you get upset, and you walk away. As if the saving of your soul isn't enough. That's sad. You clearly don't understand anthropology. You clearly don't understand how disastrous you are and how deserving of hell you are. And yet, salvation is not good enough for you. You want everything else on top of that, and you set these expectations. That's what Job was doing. And Elihu was saying, Earth to Job, come back. I know you're flying out there past Neptune. What happens when these expectations aren't met by us and the, the things fall apart because we think that's the way they should play out and we hold God to that? When they don't work out, we blame Him for being uncaring. That's exactly what's happening here. Now, Elihu was determined to correct this bad thinking in the next set of verses. Let's move to the second R. This is Elihu's rebuttal. We see this in 4 to 14. We'll start at 4. He says, I will answer you and your friends with you. Now, before launching into his rebuttal, Elihu tells the friends and Job that he is going to answer all of them. Elihu, we, we learned last week, was a man of conviction. He's not the kind of guy that could sit back and let you know, faulty thinking and empty words remain unanswered. And he heard plenty of faulty thinking and, and, and just empty replies coming from Job and coming from those friends. And at this point now, he points to the sky and begins to declare... He's telling them, I, I want you to just, just stop, just look at me, now look up to the sky. This is what he says. Number five, verse five, he says, as he's pointing up, look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. Stop there. The rebuttal begins with a reminder. Elihu is pointing to the sky and he tells the friends and Job I want you to look at the heavens. I want you to see and behold the clouds which are above the earth. They are way higher than us, way higher than you, way higher than man. What is he reminding them of? He's, is he reminding them of the sky and the heavens and the clouds? No, he's reminding them of the fact that God is above all of that stuff. The sovereign God that he's been defending thus far, he's saying, I, I want you to look up and, and, and I want you to just try with your feeble eyesight to see beyond the clouds because way up there in the third heaven is where God is, which is above you and above me and above everything else. He's reminding them of the infinite, transcendent holiness and wisdom of God. That's what he's doing. He was trying to convey by giving them a, a visual reminder, and of course he's speaking as he's giving them the reminder. He's trying to convey a universal truth. And what is it? That God's thoughts are not our thoughts. That God's ways are not our ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8-9. I tell you what, this is a great way to begin a rebuttal. To point to the heavens above so that they can remember the God who is above all this in majestic holiness and eternal reign over creation, majestically sovereign, all-powerful, above it all, higher than, higher than the highest high. This is a great way 
to begin a rebuttal. Elihu was attempting to bring Job and his friends back down to earth since they were acting like heavenly counselors who help God understand how the universe works, who somehow educate God in the ways of divine justice and pastoral care. Elihu was also trying to get Job to change his focus, really. He's saying, stop looking around at your circumstances. Stop looking and staring at your suffering. Keep your eyes on the sovereign God who's way above all this. Pretty much reminded of Jesus' exhortation in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be what? Added to you. He's trying to take them away from this earthly focus with this earthly theology of, of, you know, of, of rewards and punishments and, 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 and all their ideas and all their thoughts and all the accusations against God. He's trying to take them out of that mode that they're in, which is really hard to get people out of when they're distraught and hurting or defensive, but he's trying to get them out of that mode and to get them back into a heavenward-focused mode. You know, when all you do is look at your circumstances and look around you at all the pain and all you do is suffer and all that stuff, your view of God will be diminished. You'll start to liken Him to you. You'll start to think of Him as uncaring and unjust and, oh, woe is me. Call the wambulance. This is, this is what's going on here. Look Stop looking down, stop looking around, look up. Trying to get him to change his focus. Trying to get him to see that God is above all this. Verses 6 and 7, if you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him, give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? This is a wonderful set of questions that Elihu asked Job. Elihu's point was that God is so high above all that nothing human beings do, uh, anything that we do down here on, on this side, nothing that we do thwart or change or modify his plans. His eternal purpose moves forward undeterred even by man's rebellious acts. In fact, he works through God, man's rebellious acts to fulfill his plan and will. He did that with Joseph. His brothers hated him and wanted him to die and threw him into a pit. Later on, God used the same guy who was thrown into a pit, all the evil that was committed against Joseph. God used it for the good of Israel and saved them from a famine. He works through the destruction that man brings. He works through the devastation that man's bring, man brings. He works through the evil that man commits because he is a God of all power and all wisdom and all knowledge. He does this. He's sovereign above all things. Nothing that man does changes God's plan. Elihu asks, if your transgressions are multiplied, you know, if you just stack up sin, what does it do to him? The implied answer is nothing. God is not affected adversely by man's sin. Conversely, neither is God affected by man's righteousness. He says, if you are righteous, Job, what do you give to God? Now, if you sin, what do you give to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Once again, the implied answer was nothing. God is so high and lifted up that nothing men do affects him. Our sin doesn't have any sort of effect on him. It doesn't change his plan or change anything like that. Our righteousness doesn't have any sort of effect on him. It doesn't change anything about him. It doesn't modify his plan. We need to remember that God is the giver, not the getter. Psalm 36, 9. He may receive praise from men, but this adds nothing to him. When men refuse to praise God, it takes nothing away from him. Righteousness is pleasing to God, no doubt. Wickedness is displeasing to God, no doubt. Neither adds anything to him, or, nor do either of those things modify, enhance, change his sovereign plan. This is what he's trying to teach Job. We've heard people say things like, don't rob God of his glory. Newsflash, God has never been robbed of his glory. There is nothing that you can do, no matter how stupid it is, that can rob God of His glory. There's nothing that you can do that is so beautiful and awesome and, and righteous and pure and holy that can add to His glory. 
I'm not saying that your behavior and actions don't matter. They do. And Elihu talks about that. But in terms of God, your righteousness doesn't make His abode better and your sin doesn't make it worse. Aren't you glad that God is transcendent and beyond all of this to that level? If God's glory was in a sense impacted by my belligerent sin or anything like that, do you, God is into His glory. Do you think He would let me survive? No. You can't rob God of His glory. Cannot be robbed. God is, His glory is eternal. It's immutable, unchanging, just as He is eternal and immutable. Addition and subtraction do not apply to God's glory. His glory is blindingly bright. <laughs> In fact, it will illuminate the coming kingdom, the city that has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light, Revelation 21, 23. You ever read that one? That's pretty amazing. There's no sun or moon in the kingdom to come. Don't need it. God's glory shines it out bright and clear. Elihu adds, or what does he receive from your hand? Again, the answer was nothing. What do we give to God? He's the giver. There's nothing that finite man can do to influence God. Steve Lawson wrote, and this is a good point, by this assertion, Elihu was not teaching that God is indifferent to man's sin. Rather, the point he was making is that God's actions toward man are God-determined, not man-determined or initiated. God is not controlled by man. It is the other way around. Man is controlled by God. What does the Scripture say? The hearts of kings are like streams of water in the hands of God. God hardens hearts. God softens hearts. We do not subject God to us. We are subject to Him. That's what he's trying to teach Job. But Job seems to think that his righteousness should get him somewhere with God. Verse 8, Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Elihu teaches Job and the friends that the only effect man's sin has is on man himself and other people, not on God. That is, a person's choices and character affect his own life and the lives of others around him. We know this, but they do not affect God. You know, it, our, our wickedness doesn't bump God off his throne. Whoa, did you see what Phil did, Jesus? Yeah, made me fall out of my chair. Do you see his righteousness? It makes me feel good about today. Tuesday is going to be a good day, Jesus. This is nonsense. Conversely, right, man's sin only impacts man. Conversely, man's righteousness only impacts, what does he say, a son of man. What does that reference mean? It means people in general, everyone born of a woman. So our sin impacts those around us and our righteousness impacts those around us, but neither of those things impact God. Job believed that his righteousness had earned him certain inalienable rights with God. Elihu tells him that, no, it doesn't really work that way, Job. Your righteousness has had zero effect on God. God will not alter his sovereign plan because of your righteousness. Nor will God alter his sovereign plan if Job continues to behave like the wicked with his fatalism and stupid accusations. In other words, Elihu is trying to teach Job that the arm of God will not be bent by you, Job, or by anyone else. He does as he pleases always. He is the one and only sovereign. In verses 33, or in, actually in Job chapter 33, 14 to 29, Elihu warned Job that God might be speaking to him through dreams, visions, pain, suffering, and messengers. In the next set of verses, Elihu lays out reasons for why God may choose not to answer Job's prayers. And he gives three reasons, and we'll go through them quickly. A, God can refuse to answer prayer because of selfishness in us. Verses 9 to 11. We'll look right at those verses. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker? who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. Elihu advances his rebuttal by pointing to the ministry of God's comfort for those people like, you know, Job, who are oppressed. People cry out under a, a load of oppression, suffering under the heavy blows of life. Amen? They do. They cry out. 
And in their pain, they plead for relief from what? The arm of the mighty, talking about God, who alone can do what? Lift them out of that burden, who can lift the burden of adversity, can change their circumstances. He can do that. So when people are pressed, they'll cry out. But the same oppressed people do not pay homage to God when things are going smoothly. They act as if God does not exist. They do not say, where is God my maker, who gives us songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. In other words, their cry for help is only a plea for relief, not a plea rooted in humility and worship. They cry out only when they want something from God. They treat him like a magic genie. This is selfishness. And when God detects selfishness in our hearts and prayers, he may refuse to answer those prayers. Elihu was not generalizing here. He detected selfishness in the battered patriarch in Job. Job's boasting, complaints, demands, accusations against God, all of these things combined revealed that Job had selfishness in his heart. When he was praying to God, all these prayers, you got to listen to me, it, it's all rooted in selfishness. I want this, I want that, you owe me this, you owe me that. Now, he may not have worded it like that, but this is essentially what he's been saying through eight speeches, amen? Selfishness, if it's there, God may not answer your prayer. This is, this is exactly what Job needs to hear. B, the second thing, God can refuse to answer prayer because of self-entitlement in us. Verse 12. It's kind of like selfishness, but it's self-entitlement. It's put like this in verse 12. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Pride is the root of all evil. Genesis 3, 5, 1 Timothy 3, 6, 1 John 2, 15 to 17. It is. It is the root cause, really, of all sin, of all wickedness, all evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, and I love Bonhoeffer's writings, good stuff. He said, the mind and flesh of man are set on fire by pride, for it is precisely in his wickedness that man wants to be God. Pride causes man to want to be God or to make these unholy demands of God or whatever. What does pride do? It produces a sense of self-entitlement in us, doesn't it? An inner desire and demand for what we think is owed to us. That's what self-entitlement is. Elihu detects self-entitlement in Job. And his detective skills were like Scotland Yard. They were right on the money. Job's desire and demands for justice showed that he was self-entitled. When he kept declaring that he had rights, it shows that he thinks that God owes him something. That is self-entitlement. When a person acts like God owes them something, this is pride-induced self-entitlement. Elihu was trying to teach Job that God might not answer his prayers if he harbors pride and self-entitlement in his heart. That kind of behavior is the behavior of what he says at the end of verse 12, of evil men, not of mature believers. So God may refuse to answer prayer because of selfishness. God may refuse to answer prayer because of self-entitlement. And C, God can refuse to answer prayer because of unbelief in us, a lack of faith. Verses 13 to 14, we'll look right at them. Surely, listen to this, this is brilliant the way he puts it. Surely God does not hear an empty cry. An empty cry, underline that phrase, empty cry. Nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you are waiting for him, exclamation point. Elihu tells Job and the three friends that God does not hear an empty cry. What is an empty cry? It is a prayer without belief, without faith behind it. It is just a cry to God. It is not the cry of faith like with blind Bartimaeus. Uh, Mark 10, 47, 
He's crying out to Jesus on the roadway. He's a blind man. He's crying out in faith. Help me. Heal me. Help me. I know you can do it. Help me. Heal me. That's the cry of faith. There's a huge difference between just crying out to God and making demands while not believing in your heart that God can do anything about it. The Almighty, as Elihu says, does not regard empty cries. He does not regard faithless prayers. We must have faith. And not just, you know, just some kind of little measure of belief. We must have Trinitarian faith. Faith in the Father, faith in the Son, faith in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we are to come to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. John 14, 6, Ephesians 6, 18. We must have faith and believe in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the Godhead is God. Without faith in the Trinitarian God, without faith in God, in the person who He is, He is Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Without faith in Him, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. Why on earth would God answer our prayers if we do not have faith? When He cannot even be pleased if we don't have faith. When we pray, we must believe that God can and will do things that align with His will as revealed in Scripture. When we pray, we must pray in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name, it's not just hanging His name on the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. That's not what it means to pray in His name. It has to do with approaching God based on His merit, not our own. Romans 5, 1 through 11. It has to do with seeking to please God in prayer, right, and in our lives, not ourselves. We're not out to seek ourselves or get what we want. 1 John 5, 14, it has to do with treasuring God's glory, not our desires, not our wants. John 14, 13, that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name, to be praying for His will to be done on earth, not yours. Job was no doubt a man of faith. He believed in God, Job 33, verse 6, but he was acting like an unbeliever. According to Elihu, Job had complained about not being able to see God, right? It says it right there in the text. Look at the middle of verse 14. Job had said at some point, I do not see him. Well, guess what? Job had never actually seen God. No one can physically see God and survive, Exodus 33, 20, right? Plus, God is spirit, John 4, 24. He's invisible to the naked eye unless he reveals himself God has to be and must be viewed through the eyes of faith because He is spirit, and when He chooses to manifest His physical presence, He's too holy and glorious to be viewed by us while in this fallen state. He is a consuming fire, it talks about in Hebrews 12, 29. When Job said, I do not see Him, I do not see God, he wasn't talking about his eyesight. It's like God used to be over there and I would look at Him all the time. It's not what he's talking about. He's referring to his inability to see God through faith. He's referring to his lack of faith. He was describing his inability to discern God's presence because his faith was wavering after weeks of suffering and fierce debate with the three stooges. Right? Larry, Moe, and Curly, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Elihu is saying, God does not hear faithless cries. How much less will he hear your cries when you admit to not having enough faith to even affirm his spiritual presence, to affirm his justness, to affirm his care? Why, why would he answer your prayers when you, you're basically saying you can't see him, which means you, you, you're having a hard time believing that he exists? Why would he answer your prayers when you're acting like a faithless person? Those are the three things that he hammers Job on, and Job was guilty of all of them. There is a selfishness in him. He wants what he wants. There's a self-entitlement. God, you owe me. And there is a big void, a lack of faith, because he, he can't even spiritually recognize the presence of God who's everywhere at all times and had never left his side. I can't detect if you're there, God. What is he saying? I don't have faith. Why would God answer the prayers? Of such people. Why would he answer such empty prayers, empty cries? It's a great point that Elihu was making. Lastly, number three, Elihu's rebuke, 15 to 16. We're almost done. And now, because his anger does not punish, he's referring to God here and to Job. And now, because his anger does not punish, 
and he does not take much note of transgression. Look at what Job does because of this. He opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. In verse 15, Elihu rebukes Job for accusing God of letting the wicked slide while he, a righteous man, suffers. He cites two complaints from Job. The first is in Job 21, 7. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? According to Job, you never put the lamp of the wicked out, but look at you, you're putting out the lamp of the righteous me. Ah! And the second thing that Job had said is in 12, 6 that Elihu was pointing to, the tents of robbers are at peace. Elihu's comment in verse 15, it's really a paraphrase and combination of these two complaints from Job. If the wicked prosper, and this is what Job was not realizing in this moment, if the wicked prosper, it's not because God is not angry, not going to punish them, and not taking note of their transgressions. This is what Elihu lays out. It's not because of that. The Bible teaches very clearly that God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, verse 11, 7, 11. God will punish the wicked, Isaiah 13, 11. God is taking note of transgression for his eyes are on the ways of man. He sees all his steps. We just learned that in the previous chapter, Job 34, 21. Job knew these truths, but the combination of calamity, criticism, and collapsing faith produced bitterness in his heart. Elihu notes this in verse 16. Job spoke with clarity and wisdom at times, and he also babbled like a fool with empty talk and words without knowledge. That, my friends, is what bitterness causes in us. Unmet needs, presumptive expectations that aren't met by God, we think he's uncaring. We start to babble like a fool and say ridiculous things, and that is exactly what Job was doing. Job was a multiplier of words without knowledge. That is precisely what we become when we allow bitterness to take root because of these unmet needs, these unmet expectations that aren't fair or right. They don't acknowledge God's sovereignty. We're not telling God you can do as you please. We're telling, you, telling Him, you do as I tell you. You do as I please. When those needs aren't met, there's the bitterness, there's the foolish stuff. We become multipliers of words without knowledge. Closing. We need to learn from Job's mistakes, and we need, to, we need to also hide Elihu's wisdom in our hearts, right? Job's mistakes are illustrated through this text, and the wisdom of Elihu is illustrated in this text. And you know what? We need to, we need to jettison the mistakes and make, make, make a deal not to copy Job's behavior here and to make these wrong expectations and to do these sorts of things than to charge God with wrong doing. We need to avoid that and store this wisdom in our hearts because we may need it for a rainy day. If calamity or criticism come our way, we need to be watchful because bitterness is always lurking. It's always ready to invade. We need to be prayerful because God is our strength and our shield. Amen? Psalm 28, 7. Before we pray, we need to make sure that our hearts are free from impurities like selfishness, the impurity of self-entitlement, the impurity of unbelief. And when we pray, we are to pray in Jesus' name, approach God based on His merit, not our own, seek to please God, not ourselves, treasure God's glory, not our desires. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And guess what? God will hear and answer our prayers if our hearts are pure, full of faith, and we pray in Jesus' name. He's promised to do that. If God should tarry in answering those prayers, it does, not, it does not, it absolutely does not mean that He does not care. He cares. The cross shouts, He cares. Amen? That is where the Lord laid upon Jesus our iniquities and, and our punishment. That is where the Lord crushed Him as an offering for sin so that we could have what with God? Peace. Isaiah 53, 5-10. When you doubt that God cares, you stare at a cross and remember what God did to His Son on that cross for you. If God should 
Terry and answering those prayers that you're offering up and you're doing it with a right heart and in faith and these sorts of things in Jesus' name, if God should tarry and doesn't immediately answer those prayers, it could just be a timing issue. God has a timeline that might be different from yours. It usually is. What are you to do? Wait on Him? Hello? It could be, and this is the beauty of it, it could be that God is working through the tarrying and making you wait. It could be that He's working to stretch your faith and teach you patience. Patience is a virtue that isn't natural for us, and we all want it, but the way God teaches it to us is by making us wait. <laughs> he doesn't just give it. Oh, boy. Listen to this. God's delays should be our delight because we know He is working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. Amen. God's delays should be our delight because we trust Him and we know He is working for our good. Even in the tarrying, even in the waiting, even in the suffering, His delays should be our great delight. Hallelujah. If God should tarry, pray without ceasing... 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. In fact, we should be praying without ceasing all the time, but especially in those times where we're waiting on the Lord. Who's foolish enough to pray for, for something very important? Only once we are. I did it. Now do it. Be like the old lady that's described in a parable or wherever Jesus describes, just hammering the king over and over with her request and finally him saying, fine, you can have it. If God should tarry, pray without ceasing. But remember, remember this. When you pray, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. James 1, 6-7. When you pray... You believe that God can do it. And make sure when you pray that you are praying for His will, not yours. Not yours. And if there's a delay, delight in knowing that God is sovereign over everything and is working everything for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 